the soul of a nation. We've heard that phrase before. Can a nation have a soul? Can a nation lose its soul? There are many today who think that we are, as a nation, in peril of losing our soul. And there seems to be signs to indicate that. If by soul, which comes from the Latin word anima, which means like life or life force, the thing that gives life to another thing. If by that we mean soul, and certainly our foundings you know, are based upon Christian principles and ideals, if those are what we're losing, then it, these signs seem to indicate that we are losing our soul. Because the very foundations of our nation are our religious identity and mission. We all know that from our history. We also know that the building blocks of a society are marriage, the institution of marriage, and the institution of family, and that's all unraveling. We're seeing an unraveling of the major institutions that hold together a society, government, politics, law and order, education, and so on. So it seems as if we're losing our soul as a nation. And of course that's frightening and we don't know what to do and where to go and what our future will be because of that. But actually we do. We do know what to do with that as Christians. We do have an answer. We do have a road map through this. And the soul of a nation can be recovered. We know that right from Scriptures. Scriptures as a whole is our answer, and I'm going to get to that. But even our first reading shows us this. In Nehemiah chapter 8, a little background to it is important, though. Actually, very important. So, when we arrive at chapter 8 of Nehemiah, the, Babylon, the Jews, Jews have come back from the Babylonian exile. Well, why were they in exile? Okay, they were in exile because, first of all, they were in a covenant relationship with God. And then, what started to happen slowly and insidiously, not in one generation, but over multiple generations, is that in the covenant relationship, they were taught through Moses, for instance, and other covenants that God formed through Abraham and others. They were taught to put first things first. And God is first in the covenant relationship. But over some generations, what happened is that they started to put other things first before God. And God took a back seat. So then when you get to the rise of the Babylonian Empire, God was showing them a way through this, and they didn't listen. And they relied not so much on God's power and will and way, they relied upon their own power. And Babylon came in and occupied them and spread them in what's called the diaspora. The Jews were spread all across the Babylonian Empire to keep them weak, divided. Well, that's all happened, okay? And you would think that after years of suffering, that the, the Jews 
would wake up in their faith. They certainly longed to come back to their land and back to the temple. We see that in the prophets. But when they get back to the Holy Land, when they get back to Jerusalem, what do they do? They immediately begin to rebuild their society. Their homes are destroyed. Their crops are destroyed. No livestock, no streets, no, no, no temple. It's all in ruins. And so they're working on all this. And that's good. That's good. It's ha it has its place. We need shelter. We need food. We need an economy. Good. But this is where we pick up. God says for the priest, Ezra, no, you build me a temple first. All that other stuff is important. And I want you to do that. You need to do that. But you build me a temple first. And we might think to ourselves, whoa, that's a bit callous on your part, God, right? You're not concerned about their fundamental basic needs. Or you're being a bit egotistical, aren't you, God? Isn't it all about you? But to say that, to feel that, would be not to know who God is. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows if we don't worship him, we will end up worshiping anything else but him or before him. And that's exactly what the Jews were doing. They were busy about their lives, important stuff, but they weren't worshiping God. And they were going to be right back in the situation that they were before the Babylonian exile, which, by the way, God didn't cause. This wasn't punishment on God on a nation for losing his soul. This was on them as a people. And so he says through Ezra, you build me a temple. And that's where we pick up in chapter 8. Ezra's literally rummaging through with a group of Jews the ruins of the temple. And when he does, he unearths some scrolls. It gets translated for us, um, the book of the laws. That means the book of Moses or the books of Moses the lawgiver. What he found was the Torah, or the Pentateuch. And the Torah are the first five books of the Jewish scriptures, or of our Old Testament. And Ezra builds a pulpit, Nehemiah reports, builds a pulpit, and he immediately begins to proclaim the scriptures, the word of God, to the people who are there in the ruins of their temple. And what happens? Nehemiah records that the people begin to weep and even prostrate themselves, which is a position of worship. And why? Because they realize we are on sacred ground. And not because they're in the midst of the ruins of a temple, but because the word of God is being proclaimed to them. And they haven't heard it for generations. What happens from this is a change from a movement that begins. And the movement is 
that God works with Ezra and Nehemiah and the king and others to identify and begin to form and, and inform, shape, train teachers. Teachers who will, for generations to come, proclaim and explain the word of God to people. And you know the name of these teachers? What the Jews called them? Rabbis. This is part of the history of rabbis. And with the rabbis came synagogues. Not just a central temple in Jerusalem, but neighborhood synagogues in every town. And what would happen in these synagogues is the people would gather on the Sabbath and they would hear the rabbi proclaim the word of God and explain the word of God and they would worship as a community. And they would create schools in which the kids would grow up in the synagogue school. And then as adults over the generations, they would be steeped in the Word of God. They knew the Word of God. Over and over again, they read it or had it proclaimed to them. They knew it like the back of their hands. And what happened then was the soul of a nation came back to a people. The synagogues were like neighborhood parishes are today. So that when the Messiah came, the long-expected one came, many of the Jews were able to recognize him. Yes, there were some Jews who didn't, and this gets recorded in the gospel. There were some religious leaders in Nehemiah's day that didn't get it, in Jesus' day didn't get it, and in our day there's some of our religious leaders who don't get it. Along with people sitting in the pews and not sitting in the pews. That's nothing new under the sun. What was new is that the people realized the soul of our nation is, is about to depart us. They listened to Ezra, a local, well, first rabbi, if you will, a priest. They responded, they created these synagogues, these neighborhood churches. And they grew up their families and their marriages and they funneled all of their identity and all of their activity through this. God became first among the first. They put first things first. And everything else, second and third, came behind it. It wasn't that it wasn't important. In fact, they were able to do it better because their lives were properly ordered. And those second and third and fourth things did not become the first things. And this is good. Because in the next 300 plus years of their life, up until the time the Messiah came, the Jews went through hell and back. The Persians freed the Jews from the Babylonians. And then the Greeks overtook the Persians. And then the Greek Empire collapsed and little Greek kings came in and they occupied the Palestine area and they oppressed the people and their religious practice. And when the Jews came in and overtook the Greeks, I mean, sorry, the Romans came in and overtook the Greeks, they were even worse. 
And the Greeks and the Romans both had the same policy, and it's this. We're going to get rid of your religious identity. We're going to break up the cohesiveness of your society built on religious faith by introducing foreign things to you. Foreign gods who didn't exist. Setting up shrines and idols and temples to them. And introducing practices that were antithetical to their Jewish faith. That were not part of their values and their systems of how they saw humanity. And how God revealed humanity to himself through him. That's how they did it. But here's the deal. They didn't do it. They weren't successful. And the Jews did not, for the most part, as a nation. Some did, yes, we understand that. But as an entirety, they got through all of that. So much so that when the word of God became flesh, Jesus Christ incarnate, became flesh. They, because they were listening to him all along and building their lives upon him all along and their hopes upon him, no matter what was happening around them in their government or in their economy and the wars and the people and the culture and all that kind of stuff, they survived that. They thrived in the midst of that. They were a religious people that were strong in their communities precisely because they were in the word of God. When Jesus came and he fulfilled all of that. See, that was the architecture for what was going to become in a more perfect form. The synagogue became the church. The rabbi became the priest. The word of God was proclaimed to the first generation of Christians who were Jews who responded to Christ and formed the one holy Catholic apostolic church which has seen nations and empires and kingdoms come and go, rise and fall. So we go back to that question. Are we losing the soul of our nation. And many fear that we do. And part of that, that we are doing that. And part of that is because what is going on with the institutions that uphold a nation, our religious faith, not just our spiritual feelings, our religious identity and practice and traditions, the word of God, our marriages, our families, and so on. And so if we're fearing that, and we're thinking that, oh, this is too big, how can I make a difference in restoring the soul of a nation? All you have to do is go into the book of Nehemiah chapter 8 and get your answer. And then pick up the entire book. Let me ask this question. I don't want a show of hands. I want you to think about this as an individual. Have you read the entire Bible yet? And then if you have, are you reading it again and again and again? Because that's what the Jews did from Nehemiah on. They raised their children up in it. They lived and breathed the scriptures. All their prayers came out of the scriptures and it was the last words upon their breath when they were dying. Have you read the scriptures? 
Because the word of God is what is going to restore the soul of this nation. And it will be a grassroots effort. So yes, you do matter in restoring the soul of the nation. Because how can we not, how can we restore the soul of an entire nation if we don't transform the souls of its citizens? You and I. As individuals. In our marriages, in our families, in our parishes, in our schools. That have kicked God out of our schools. The primary place where we form our kids is the family and the school. So here's what I propose. We are swimming in the word of God as opposed to the Jews in Babylon who didn't have access to it. And when they got access to it, as we heard in Nehemiah 8, they wept and they worshiped the true God. We have access to the word of God all around us, like in social media. So here's what I propose to you. I propose that you read the Bible in one year. And here's how. Easily how. Father Mike Smith, who I went on pilgrimage with about 10 years ago for the Holy Land, he and I led a pilgrimage together about 200 uh, Christians, he has produced a podcast called The Bible in One Year. It's a podcast. You can get it any of the podcast apps that you listen to, like Spotify. Last year, he produced the whole thing. Many of our parishioners have already gone through it, but now it's done, so you can pick it up anytime you want, and you don't have to follow a calendar day. You can listen to three podcasts in a day. You can skip one or two days. If it's a Bible one year, it needs to be a Bible in two years, fine. Right? You go at your own pace. It's set for 20 minutes a day. And the first part of it is him just simply reading the scriptures to you. And there's a reading plan too if you want to have the scriptures in your plan, in your hands. But you can just listen to the whole thing. And the second part is him explaining the scriptures to you from a Catholic priest, from a teacher. Because we don't do the scriptures on our own, that's why Christ created the church. So here's this priest, I know him, he's a faithful priest. Here's a priest explaining to you every day what you've just heard. And both parts within the context of 20 minutes. If you're concerned about the soul of this nation, heck, if you're concerned about your spouses, about your children, whether they're young or older, or your grandchildren, or this church, or this community, or every other part of our life, our education system, our law and order, our, our whatever, all of those are secondary and tertiary. If we make God first, put first things first, then we must put God first in his word in our life. And if you listen to the Bible in one year, I'll say it again, the Bible in one year, Father Mike Smith, then listen to it again and again. And there are other formats by other great teachers of our faith out there. Then here's the deal. 
one by one, one marriage, one family, one community, one school, and so on by one. We, with Christ first in our life, we will recapture the soul of this nation. And we will stop worshiping at the altars of false gods and idols. I want to end with this. That word worship, it comes from an old English word. And all it means is this, to proclaim something worthy. That's what worship is. To proclaim something worthy of my time, of my attention, of my devotion, of my love, of my money, of my energy, of my relationship, and so on. True worship is to proclaim Him worthy of our time, energy, devotion, love, time, money, relationship. And when we do that, just on a 20 minutes a day, He will correct all of our other worship. Where we're proclaiming this thing in our hands, or this addiction, or our jobs, or our home, or our money, or our economy, or our schools, or whatever we're worried about, or whatever we're engaged in, whatever we give our time to. He will correct that worship. We'll no longer worship that stuff by giving that stuff our first and our best and our most. We will give Him that. The Word of God will bring the soul back into each one of us, and then together we will bring the soul back into this nation. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So everybody who just applauded, Father Mike Smith, the Bible in one year, put your life where you just applauded, all right?